Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and a warm welcome to you um, as we settle in for what I hope will be a stimulating um, conversation tonight at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre. Welcome. My name is Dan Gaffney. I'm your host tonight. And before I say any more, let me acknowledge and pay respect to the original people and traditional owners of this land. Uh, this is uh, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, and this university is built on their ancestral lands. It's also worth noting that Charles Perkins, whom this centre is named after, um, is one of our most um, revered alumni. Um, Charles Perkins became the first Aboriginal man to graduate from an Australian university. That was in 1966 from this university. So without further ado, tonight is the third of um, our four Sydney Ideas Forums. It's on addiction and we'll say more about that shortly. Um, and leading us in conversation tonight, from your left to right, we have uh, Dr. Andrew Campbell, Professor Kate Conagrave, and Professor Nick Glinzeris, and I'll introduce them more fully in a moment also. You'll see on the slides that we have free Wi-Fi available tonight, there's a login that you'll see. I think it's uh, Ideas Health Forum and Ideas Health Forum 1 for the password. If you want to ask a question, raise your hand. We've got two roving mics and we will get those to you. So just quickly, for a snapshot of the room, uh, two questions. Um, who's here in some kind of professional capacity? You might be a clinician, a researcher, or a PhD student, or someone studying. Great, thank you, that helps us. And if you're here in some personal capacity, you might be an alumnus, you might be a teacher, you might be uh, a benefactor who wants to give money to the university. Um, that's a lot of benefactors, that's great. <laughs> Good, thank you. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce the panellists. In the middle, uh, the rose amongst the thorns, is Professor Kate Conagrave. Kate is a, an addiction medicine specialist and public health physician. Her clinical work is based at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Kate has over 110 journal publications, and she's the editor of the Oxford University Press handbook called Addiction Medicine. Uh, she's acted as a consultant to the World Health Organization on early intervention for alcohol problems, and she chairs the National Health and Medical Research Council committee currently charged with revising Australia's drinking guidelines. To Kate's left is Professor Nick Lanzaris. Nick has worked in the addiction medical field for 25 years in Melbourne, London and Sydney. His main interests are in the development and effective treatment services for people with substance use disorders, particularly people using drugs that cross over between medicine and recreational use, uh, including opioids, stimulus and cannabis. And finally, Dr Andrew Campbell. Uh, Dr Andrew Campbell has been researching and teaching in the area of e-mental health, uh, cyber psychology, 
uh, and child, adolescent and family mental health for the past 15 years. He's currently senior lecturer in psychology um, and a registered and adolescent psychologist. He's, uh, he works here at the Faculty of Health Sciences. He's also the chair of the newly formed Cyber Psychology Research Group in the Faculty of Health Sciences. Andrew was the first psychologist in Australia to research and publish on the use of the internet for social fearfulness and anxiety and self-help. His research focuses on communication technology and its impact on health and well-being, especially video game addiction, mobile phone use, youth culture and technology. So, without further ado, I might ask um, Andrew if you would just share us with us two or three minutes to kind of help shape the conversation from your end about why you're here tonight and what you think it might be important to talk about. Uh, for many years now, I've been asked the same question over and over. Um, am I addicted to the internet? And uh, it, it's one of those questions that uh, at first, early in my career, it plagued me because I, I felt uh, being addicted to a technology uh, was not the same as, as the stimulants of alcohol or, or opioids. And uh, I, was, I was fascinated in that question, so I wanted to research a little bit more myself. Um, to, to put it in the context of tonight, I'm hoping I can give you some answers on what are the individual areas of technology, whether it be smartphones, video games, apps, you name it, whether or not there is some evidence behind it as it is an addictive uh, piece of equipment or whether it's habitual, obsessive, all these different other terms. And also because I'm, I'm fascinated with how it is actually changing our dynamic in a society where we're constantly tuned in, turned on to uh, social media, uh, to media in general, as well as to each other. So I'm very interested in how that's playing out on a social psychology level. Thank you. Um, we'll throw to questions in a moment, um, but I wanted to get, um, Kate, your comments first. Thank you. Um, I think addiction... It's a new, uh, relatively new thing on the evolutionary scale, but based on the most primitive part of our brain, it drives, it um, builds on the reward centre of our brain, which is the part that tells us we need to eat, we need to drink, we need to keep the human race going. Um, and but modern drugs and modern substances tend to hijack that reward system, so the substance or sometimes the behaviour, becomes a higher priority than survival itself. And even mice, if you stimulate their reward centre with a little electrode, they'll keep pressing the bar until they die. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's a reminder that this is, even though there's very powerful social influences on it, there is a deep biological element of addiction. And for me, that's a reason why a moral stance about addiction just doesn't work. Um, and addiction is the combination of the person, the drug, and their environment. And, you know, the person's genes and the person's environment, they get very little say about, particularly in their childhood. Um, so I'm interested in a social justice view of um, substance use and addiction. Thanks, Kate. And to Nick? Yeah. Um, uh, look, we are one of the most medicated and highest drug-using societies in the world. Always have been. Australians love their drugs. We really do well with them. Um, and it's pretty hard, I imagine, Andrew and Kate, suddenly happens to you, it's hard to go to a party or to any social function. What do you do? I work in drugs. Ah, 
and then the story starts. So it's either about their friend, their 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 partner, someone they work with, um, themselves, and there's a deep fascination. I think many people are fascinated by substance use, by use of drugs. I think the emerging technologies um, likewise. And it's an area that I think, um, as a society, we haven't really done rational drug policy particularly well. Um, and the more we engage community in what a rational drug policy is and what it might look like, I think we've got a much better chance than leaving it up to our lawmakers and politicians. Um, so I think these kinds of community forums are a really important way in terms of how do we move forward in, in developing up a sensible approach to, um, to not just drugs, but also to some of these broader issues of, of addiction and behaviour. Super. So if you have a question, raise your hand. If you don't have one straight away, I've got some backups. But um, anyone here got a question? Can we get a mic to you? This is to you, Kate. Um, uh, can a blinded diagnostician look at any sort of a scan without knowing who the subject is, who is being investigated, uh, presuming the brain is the organ you're going to do the scanning of, and can that, can that scan show up some centre in the brain which is, uh, or a combination of centres in the brain, which is specifically identified as addictional? I'll just have a go at answering it, and if and Nick might want to, or Andrew can take over if they want to add to it. I don't believe you can find any centre of the brain um, that looks different on a scan, but there are centres that behave differently in people who are addicted to a substance. So, for example, if someone has been addicted to cocaine and you show them a visual image of anything to do with their cocaine use, it might be a shop that looks like the spot where the dealer used to stand, or it might be a, a bedroom, some the wallpaper pattern that was similar, you'll see a light up in their part of their brain with this powerful drive to go back to substance use. Unfortunately, you can show someone in the same scan, a photo of their beloved, and, they, and the same part of the brain will, will, will light up. Or you can, you know, for some, for some people, it may be cocaine. For others, it may be a bar of chocolate, fruit and nut variety, preferably. Um, so, so again, so, so yes, there are biological parts that, that, that um, are the consequences of, of substance use and addiction, but they're not... Um, they're, they're not specific for a, for a particular drug or a particular substance. It's a mechanism rather than uh, sort of a being able to say, we've got a biological test that will determine, that will allow us to diagnose an alcoholic, a, a um, cocaine addict or a heroin addict. We're not there yet. Or... For technology, the specific studies that have been done uh, were around video games and looking at aggression. So the amygdala was one of the regions that lights up after certain gameplay time for specific violent games. Having said that, when we look at the, the context of showing a gamer who enjoys a particular game, say a violent game, uh, a different type of game, the reaction didn't happen. So it's, it's very, very specific. Uh, and the amygdala studies is the only one I'm familiar of at the moment. But other than that, 
in regards to, uh, and this is going back to dial-up uh, internet technology, that old buzz that you used to hear that ding, 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 shh, that sound. Uh, many studies have been shown that that gave people delight when they heard that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's definitely some, some uh, image studies around that. Just to dig into the brain connection, um, um, Kate and maybe others, um, what changes neurobiologically in our brains when we become dependent on I asked substance? for this, didn't I? You did. Um, the, a key part of dependence is the dopamine system. Mm. So, and the dopamine is, is one of the chemicals that's the transmitter in your reward pathway, that, that basic pathway that ensures survival. And it's the pathway that reinforces behaviours that are important to survival. Um, and, in fact, when people use more of many addictive drugs, their dopamine levels can go down. Um, and we also know that people with lower dopamine levels are more prone to substance use. Mm -hmm. So they get in this vicious cycle. The more they use, the less their dopamine, recept their dopamine receptors, sorry. So their dopamine receptor levels are going down. So the more they use, the lower their dopamine receptor levels, the more they need to use. So they get locked in this cycle. And I think it's a... That, that's just one. There are also there are a myriad of changes with, um, within the cell itself. There are the chemical cascades that do signalling from the cell membrane onto the metabolism of the cell can change, particularly, say, for alcohol dependence. So there's quite a complex set of changes, but they can act to reinforce the very um, dependence that set off those changes. And it's why, for someone with a severe dependence, um, a residential program can be really valuable because it gives their brain and their chemistry a little bit of time to reset. The milder forms of dependence you can often manage as an outpatient, but if someone's got a really severe problem, sometimes just that downtime can be very valuable. Is it similar or different in other substances, Nick? Well, I think it's fair to say that there's a range of effects upon the brain and our, on our central nervous system. Um, some of those effects are, drug, are related to long-term use of a particular drug. So if you get a brain of a, of a long-term drinker, alcohol drinker, that's going to look slightly different in a range of ways to someone that might have been using opioids all their lives. So some of that is, is very drug-specific as to what the drugs, the effects of the drugs on the brain. But then there's also some of the common pathways that relate to, um, to uh, sort of addiction-type behaviours. And a lot of those seem to be all about early development. I think Andrew and Kate, you guys probably know about this stuff more than me, but you know, in, in adolescence, heavy use of any substance or, or various kinds of stresses in early childhood and adolescence can actually prevent the brain from developing uh, fully. And in particular, when we start talking about adolescent alcohol use, adolescent cannabis use, adolescent opiate use, pretty much any heavy substance use and a range of other stresses. It's not just substance use that will do this. Some of this could be you know, being the subject of domestic violence, um, a whole range of kinds of you know, social harms, can actually then prevent the normal development of the brain. And that then makes these individuals far more vulnerable to future uh, addictions, plus a range of other kinds of cognitive problems and other um, uh, mental health problems, anxiety, depression, and so forth. Then that creates all these kinds of loops that if you've got depression, anxiety, cognitive problems, then your substance use actually becomes a way of coping with the world, and, and which then, of course, causes more problems. 
So you, you end up with this kind of a vicious cycle. But the adolescent, you know, the, the adolescent brain, the developing brain is a key central pathway in all this, in all the addictions, and something that I think we're starting to get a better understanding around. And I think it's one of the real challenges in the... In the you know, we can generally keep most adolescents away from using too much heroin. We're kind of okay at that. But try keeping your adolescent away from using, you know, the internet or the game. You know, it, that's where it really starts to get difficult. And I, and I don't think we know where we're going to be in 20 years' time with the consequences of these kinds of behaviours in this generation. But here we have a group of old people complaining about youth of today's. <laughs> Andrew, is there anything neurochemically that's yeah, an analogue to have, what Kate talked about? I was actually going to extend that. Uh, it's spot on in the regards to the, the latest research in regards to using technology where it becomes a dependency. Uh, so I'll precurse this now for everybody. The term internet addiction in clinical terms is not yet qualified. And the reason being is that we haven't got enough data to actually show that it is a dependency that can lead to the absolutely horrific unravelling of people's lives. We certainly know it can in some cases, but when we look at it applied to every potential case, it more often hasn't gone that way. If anything, some of the evidence is showing it's more spectrum, and it starts in adolescence, or it starts actually a little bit before adolescence, but the developing brain. And the one thing we have qualified is that obsessive behaviour or escapism with the technology is a coping mechanism to depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and a whole plethora of other particular uh, traumas as well. So the connection, the comorbidity of the technology use and the high level of that use or obsession with it, more often than not, is connected to depression, anxiety, and various other uh, mental health disorders. So you're saying it may be not driven by an addiction per se, but uh, because it's... It's, it's helping someone cope with another health-related issue. I, I would even be very careful in saying helping. Yep. I'd rather say Driven distracting by, yep. or, or preoccupying them. Yep. And in some cases, uh, when we look at personality disorders, the people have found a way that they engage better socially online than they do offline. And that's, that's a whole other bag of tricks in a way. So we're, we're really only just at the tip of the iceberg of this at the moment. And that's why the, the, the conclusive evidence of the internet is addictive. And, and if I can just say this very quickly, saying the internet is addictive is like saying I'm addicted to my shoes. You know, I wear shoes every day. But the shoes I'm not addicted to. I'm addicted to the shoes because they actually protect my feet. So really what I could be addicted to, which I still think is the wrong term, is the fact that I like my feet to feel comfortable. A person online wants to feel comfortable, engaged, social. So really we're looking at the behaviour that they're looking to maintain, getting the dopamine reward, and also the function. Because somebody who does gambling online could very well be extending a gambling problem offline. But someone who does gaming online might be doing it for reasons of social connectedness, not necessarily because they're an aggressive, competitive person. So we've got to look at the functions as well. Great. Question. My name's Gemma. I'm a postgrad here at uh, Sydney Uni, and I'm working on internet game addiction. Actually, I've met you, Andrew. Oh, hi. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is for you, Andrew. Based on what you just said, I think I know what you, how you're going to answer this, but it doesn't matter. Um, in terms of the term internet addiction, you did say that there isn't enough evidence to support it. I'm interested in whether you think it is actually the right term or whether there's some um, mm. 
whether there's some risks in actually using the word addiction? The, the term that we're using right now, and it's been published about for about 10 years, is pathological internet use. So PIU. Yeah. Okay. Having said that, yeah, there's risks. I'm not going to say there's not. And we have many case studies to show these risks. I'll give you, the audience, an example. Some of the extreme cases of people dying at their keyboards from sitting and playing for 14, 15 hours without eating, drinking, and so on. Now, this is a very small group of people, but it has happened. We've also seen people end up in her hallucinatory or delusional states, but when we look at the background of their mental health, we saw that they were uh, predisposed to that to begin with. What we're really looking at is what technology does to the, the mean average person. Is it distracting us from social engagement? Is it distracting us from priorities or giving us too many priorities? Is it interrupting our sleep, our diet, those sorts of things? So the, to answer your question specifically, I think Addiction is a word we could use, but I don't think it is the all-encompassing word. I think it's probably more habitual or obsessional or purpose-built to an environment. To give an example that I think everybody in this room probably has is checking behavior, checking of your phones. The average person checks their phones 85 times a day. Now, if you say that because you check a, a phone 85 times a day, whether it's ringing or has a message on or not, you just simply pick up and look at it. Are you addicted to it? No, you are habituated to it. You want to make something happen. You are being distracted. Before we had phones, most of us would take something with us to be distracted by, whether it be music, a book, or they'd chew their nails. <laughs> so we've got to look in that sort of spectrum, in a way, of habituation, obsession, moving towards addiction. Nick, you've got views uh, on the word addiction. Do you want to share them a little bit? Is it just a loaded term? Are we just being politically correct? Is it time to move away from that, that word? Well, within medicine, we've actually moved away from it, except for what we addiction medicine specialists call ourselves. So we're kind of... Uh, <laughs> the last. Yeah, we're the last, the last of a dying breed. Um, so in medicine, there actually hasn't... The term addiction has actually been gone for, what, 20 years or so now. We've moved away from it. Uh, so the and that the reason so the, the word itself addict comes from you know Latin concept of slave. Mm -hmm. So and you can see you know so you can see there's a, you know the, 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 that meaning of of being a slave to something where um, where you don't want to do it but you've lost the sense of control over the behaviour the action whatever it is there. So so that's where the background to the term. Then sometime probably around the 1980s, there was a recognition that it's a stigmatising term to call someone an addict, to call someone an alcoholic or a heroin addict. So that was considered too stigmatising, also a little bit imprecise. And so the concept of dependence then was developed. So in medicine, we've, you know, ICD-10, DSM-4, uh, used to have the concept of, a, of, of, of an abuse or dependent. So that was the way we could categorise harmful patterns of, of substance use. Um, there's a current trend now, uh, so with DSM-5 and I think ICD-11 uh, is going in the same direction, in exactly the same way Andrew described it, of thinking of this more of a spectrum. So rather than there being a binary switch, yes you are an addict or not an addict, Recognising this is really more of a, of a, you know, it's about shades of grey. Mm. Um, and that people can move on that continuum 
according to a whole range of factors, which could be stresses in their lives, could be availability of technology or drugs. Um, so there's a whole range of things that can vary where people sit on that spectrum. Um, and we have got ways of being able to say if you tick more than five out of, out of ten criteria, we will say that you've got a severe substance use disorder and we've got now our secret little code books. So if you have got a mo moderate or severe substance use disorder, that's the same as what we used to call dependence, which is what we used to call addiction, but we're not allowed to use that word anymore. What's really interesting is you look at an area such as pain medicine. So pain medicine is really interesting because up until about 20, 30 years ago, pain doctors used to just do what they did. You know, they used to get on treating people. And opioids were part of what they used, but it wasn't a big role. Then the drug companies started developing and designing all these fantastic opioid drugs. And they were marketed well and, and, and very well and very effectively. And so now we have in some parts of the world, including Australia, extreme levels of opioid use. And a lot of concerns around, gee, you're creating all these dependent people. And of course, the pain doctors would then get into disputes with us or into disagreement. No, 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 my patient doesn't get addicted. They're not an addict because they're a pain patient and I'm prescribing the, the medicine for them. So they're not an addict because they don't have long hair, tattoos, <laughs> torn jeans and an earring. So they can't be an addict. And that's when you start exposing, well, what, you know, let's, let's unpack what you mean by that. So again, the term addict was used in a stigmatizing way. My patient isn't an addict. Your patient is. Um, and it's always Kate and my patients are the, the ones who are called addicts. So look, the, 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 the langu language matters in medicine and in healthcare and in society. So I think it's probably a good thing we've moved away from, in medical parlance, using the terms addiction and dependence, and a concept of there's an us and a them. There's us, and we're not addicts, and there's a them. There's a small group of people who are the them. And there's something biologically different about them. You know? And of course, we could never be them, because you know, they're, they're different. So I think recognizing this is really more about uh, you know, a continuum, a spectrum, and that these behaviors are fundamentally functional. People don't use the internet um, you know, with, without it being functional, and people don't use drugs you know, unless they're also functional. The problems are when, they, when the harms outweigh the functions, and that's when people like us get involved. I want to come back to how we define harm in a moment and ask Kate, but we've got a question here. Hi, I'm Jenny, and I'm a pharmacist who sees a lot of um, opioid treatment program patients. And um, I just wanted to ask, I see a great, like, seems to be a correlation between um, opioid treatment program patients and um, sugar cravings and addiction to sugar. Um, and since a lot of them also have, uh, might be on other medications to treat mental health, um, which further can, you know, um, raise their diabetes profile and things like that. I was wondering, what's the mechanism of, like, the correlation between these? And um, have you seen any, like, good programs um, that addresses this? Maybe I could start and others can continue. Um, I think sugar hits the same reward system, again, related to, you know, foods and particularly sweet foods, 
being something that helps with, with survival when you're starving or hungry. And I think there are studies backing up what you say. So, for example, for alcohol dependence, when people mm. stop drinking, they often have a strong sugar craving and maybe it's looking for a substitute treat. Um, in terms of the methadone and the suboxone, um, the methadone also... People put on a lot of weight with the methadone and um, Nick would be a good one to discuss the biology of that. A lot of, as you say, a lot of the antipsychotics, the drugs that people go on for, for things like schizophrenia, also pack on the weight. In terms of programs, I think this Charles Perkins Centre has a, a very good unit that specifically looks at the, the metabolic syndrome in people who are on antipsychotics. And people can get referred in and they get an exercise program and I think they see a psychologist and they, they get advice on their diet because it is something that really requires active management and it can be managed, but people do need to, to adapt. And just by the by, there's, of course, people on... Um, opiates, whether it's methadone or whether it's morphine or whether it's codeine, it dries their mouth. Um, so having a sugar craving and a dry mouth also sets you up for, for holes in your teeth and lots of dental needs. Hep C also increases your likelihood that you're going to run into trouble with diabetes as well. So it's a perfect storm. We shouldn't forget, though, in underlying a lot of this kind of stuff, yes, there are certainly biological mechanisms, but there's also, I think it was recently published in the paper, you know, the Lycra Index you know, social determinants of health. So um, there is, uh, you know, there are clear relationships between poverty and nutrition and poor nutrition. So we shouldn't underestimate, you know, those kinds of social factors as well. Uh, it's right. harder to, you know, eat well when you have no money. Mm. Um, and if you're on a methadone program, you're spending, I don't think many people necessarily know this, if you're on the methadone program, you're spending about a quarter of all the of all, and you're on benefits, a quarter of all your resources are going to pay uh, for your methadone treatment. There's very few other areas in healthcare where actually we burden our patients with that kind of cost. So if you've got no money, it's much cheaper to eat rubbish food than to eat good food as well. So that's a real problem. And if I can just add to that, the other, the other element is, is similar to what Andrew was saying about people use internet to escape stress or distress, and likewise people use food. It's, it's very consoling. And mm. if they can no longer use heroin, they don't want to use heroin, they're um, seeking consolation for stress in sometimes quite traumatic and difficult presents, and sometimes they're carrying a burden of traumatic and difficult pasts. Don't you think we should get these people on Q&A? Informed, helpful, empathic. Isn't it great? We've got a question over here. Thank you. Oh, hi. Uh, Sherry here. This is um, following up on Kate's mention a couple of times of the reward-based system, the reward-based learning system. I wonder if you could just explain that a little bit more, how, how exactly that mechanism works. And also, I'm aware of a program that's using mindfulness to, in a way, hack the brain, or that's the way it's described, to hack that reward-based learning system and replacing those rewards with the curiosity used in mindfulness or the loving-kindness practice in, in some meditation traditions. And I wonder if you've had any experience with that or any thoughts about that. Yeah, really interesting questions. I, I won't go too far in the neurobiology without, you know, PowerPoints and slides to show it, but basically our, our brains are a bundle of circuits um, a very special bundle of circuits. 
but just like if you practice the piano again and again, things get reinforced and you remember where the keys are and, and those pathways and circuits um, get reinforced and the currents travel down them more readily, if you like. Your, your reward pathway, it's a, a series of connections in your brain. So, for example, if you use something pleasurable, um, so, for example, let, let's choose cocaine, which is slightly less often used, but you get a, a dopamine release and that sends a signal along to some other part of your brain. And I might get one of the gentlemen on either side of me to help bail me out from there on. But it's basically a series of chemical and electrical pathways that light up, but they get reinforced. The whole purpose of dopamine is to reinforce behaviours that are important to survival. So um, when you use a drug, it reinforces, this was fantastic, I want to use it again. And so nicotine, of course, is one of the most addictive drugs. So when people smoke it, if they smoke it repeatedly, something like, I think, 90% of people who are daily smokers get addicted to it, and um, these, these pathways um, get reinforced. I won't go further in that, and after, afterwards I'll defer to, the, to see if someone can explain it better. But um, in terms of mindfulness, it, there's a lot of interest in mindfulness in treatment of addictions. And I think it's... I mean, part of it from a very practical point of view is being able to sit with and live with and being aware that I've got a strong craving, but that doesn't have to make me do it. I can acknowledge that strong craving's there. I can feel it. I can live with it. I don't have to necessarily be so distressed by it, and I don't necessarily have to act on it. And also mindfulness, and um, I think some principles of it are incorporated into the DBT, as distinct from CBT, Dialectical Behavioural Therapy, uh, which is helping people balance the strong and powerful emotions and um, working out difficulties re with relationships, difficulties coping with past traumas and helping them be able to sit to it and, and get a, an element of calm without having to reach for that distraction or that relief from substances or indeed from, from net. And Andrew, did you want to...? I, I was just going to talk about the mindfulness one. That's, that's the one we know most about uh, in psychology when we look at it from cognitive behavioural therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, and mindfulness is based more in acceptance and commitment therapy, but new CBT-type approaches are, are incorporating that in DBT as well. Uh, what we've found is getting people to experience not just not having the the substance to make them feel better, but to question what they feel and, and examine those feelings is, uh, to use your term, uh, it's becoming a brain hack. Um, having said that, it's about sustainability that's the challenge. Because people tend to enter into mindfulness quite well, and it's the maintenance past that that's the challenge because the dopamine reward from mindfulness is very <coughs> subtle. But if maintained over time, the changes are extraordinary, and we believe that's the new neural pathways or neural pathway uh, changes that are happening. So it's actually now moved from mindfulness is good, but what is better is if you can make it part of your life. And the irony being is make mindfulness an addiction. <laughs> you know, make it a habit. I forgot to say, if you want to follow us along or contribute um, on Twitter, um, the hashtag is SIDHealth, S-Y-D-H-E-A-L-T-H, which is why I'm holding my device, Andrew. Sorry, um, we'll treat We've got a question here. <laughs> Hi, I guess this is for Nick. Um, I'm curious what's driving the high excessive opiate use around the world. Is it simply the availability of drugs, or is it a biological cause, a no, mixture of both. What's causing 
all this excessive use? So in Darwinian fashion, I don't think we've actually had any major mutations in our DNA in the last 30 years that would explain you know, uh, biologically that, that the human being has changed in the last 30 years compared before. So I think we can you know, start thinking about social factors and environmental factors and politics and so forth. Um, look, I think there's clearly a relationship that's happened about when we say there's a growing world of opioids, we need to break this down. In some parts of the world, opioid use is rampant and is predominantly pharmaceutical opioid use. And that is in countries such as the US, Canada, Australia, we're in the top three. I think we're podium finishers in that regard. Um, and in other parts of the world, it is almost impossible to get a prescription of opioids. So we do have this, this bizarre kind of situation that some parts of the world Opioids are just not available for patients and in other parts of the world we're actually using them far too much. So that tells you that, again, it's probably not genetic, it's probably got to do with the way we organise the world, you know, social and cultural issues and uh, business. And, and so there is no doubt that you know, there's a relationship between the way pharmaceutical industries have uh, driven medicine there's a clear relationship, and there's nothing new about this. I'm, I'm not saying anything which I don't think you know, people understand well before. Um, the link between the pharmaceutical industry within the development of a, spe a specialty within medicine, which then drives the sale of the pharmaceutical industry and reinforces the existence of a specialty in medicine. So this is a kind of a symbiotic relationship. And if you look at the emergence of medical specialties over history, they usually, a specialty usually forms with the onset of a new technology, something else that no one else does, or a drug that no one else is capable of prescribing. So I think what we've seen is the emergence of pain medicine for a whole bunch of good reasons, but also some, um, dare I say, uh, less, less altruistic reasons, you know, motives as well has certainly led. So in the, in the US, you know, so things such as pain became the sixth vital sign. So every patient, you know, you monitor blood pressure, temperature, pulse rate, respiratory rate, whether or not your bowels have been opened, and pain. So all of a sudden you started measuring it all the time and you had to treat it all the time and, you know, we had to ablate all pain, which meant we had to do something about it. And of course, opioids, Chronic medicine, we have a health system that doesn't do chronic health particularly well. It does acute health. And so when you've got five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes to deal with a chronic problem, it's much easier to prescribe a drug, especially if the drug company's told you this is the best way to do it. So that's driven a lot. We also have had the, the Middle East and the, the calamity of politics in the Middle East over the last 20, 30 years has been driving opioid production as well. What's happened in the US of the last five years is almost the perfect storm. You really could not have planned it better. A, a number of factors are, that are, that, that what's happening in the US now, and we should be conscious of it because let's hope that we don't see it as well. So the creation of a huge, you know, levels of opioid use, prescription opioid use in the US to rampant levels, like 10 to 20 times higher per capita usage than, say, I think 15 years ago. So this is, you know, there, there's a whole range of factors, how has that happened? And then the authorities realise, oops, we've got a problem here, so we better start turning the tap off, the pharmaceutical prescription drug tap off. 
So they're trying to do things like introduce prescription monitoring programs, crack down on pill doctors, change regulations, change guidelines to try to stem the prescribing of opioids. But you've already got an addicted population. On top of that, throw in the, the chaos of you know, US employment figures in the Midwest. and those. So the, the Rust Belt states is where the opioid use is the greatest. On top of all that, open the doors to a legal cannabis industry in the US, which meant that all those Mexican drug cartels that used to basically exist to sell Americans weed no longer have a market because Americans are growing their own weed. They've actually got too much weed. <laughs> so what, are the, um, what were the Mexican cartels going to do? Just walk away? Oops, we're out of business now. Or would they say, but there's a new business opportunity. Of all these ex-oxycontin patients who now are addicted and are prepared to start using the heroin that will grow and sell them. So this is almost the perfect storm of what not to do is what's happened in the US over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, you know, the same conditions haven't happened to the same extent elsewhere in the world, but what's happening in the US now is not just the rampant pharmaceutical opioid use, but now we're seeing rampant heroin use, like levels of heroin use that haven't been seen in the US before. And we've just got to be, you know, cross our fingers and hopefully get a little bit smarter than that, look at what kinds of policies do we need to you know, put in place to try to prevent the same thing happening here. So Nick, you're saying it depends how these things are set up and they have many factors. There's biology, there's environmental, there's geopolitics even. In a country like Australia, how much of problematic use um, in terms of the burden of disease is related to prescription and recreational, sorry, prescription versus recreational use of substances, if there's such a thing, or do you have to go by drug? So, so I think we, we should also, you know, get it, we need to get it language right, because yep. you can take, you know, a, 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 a Valium tablet or a morphine tablet can be used as intended for a good medical indication, but it can also then be sold on the street and injected in someone's groin. So the same pill, on the one hand, is appropriately used without much in the way of harms other than maybe a dry mouth, yet in someone else, the same pill can result in, in calamity. So, so a binary world of prescribed or pharmaceutical drugs are good and illicit bags, uh, drugs are, are bad doesn't entirely work. We, we don't actually know how to count properly. So when you look at things like national household surveys and you go and ask people... You know, someone knocks on your door and says, hi, I'm from the government and I want you to tell me about your drug use. Um, some people are going to answer honestly and others won't. Uh, but, you know, it's as good as we've got. We are seeing, you know, increasing... Um, what's the term we use for it? It's non-medical prescribed use or non-medical use of pharmaceutical drugs. I think that's the way there. So it's people who acknowledge... Yeah, yeah, I'm using Oxycontin or Endone or Valium, but it's got nothing to do with a doctor's prescription or I'm not using it in that way. So that's an increasing issue. Um, so we know problems around psychoactive drugs have a big burden upon our healthcare system. We have more overdoses now than we ever have had before, and most of those are pharmaceutical drugs, not illicit heroin. So there's a whole range of markers in there. But let's put all this in context. Our number one drug problem is alcohol. 
used to be tobacco, but we kind of gotten better at that. It's alcohol. So all the other drugs combined, illicit and pharmaceutical, still pale in comparison to the harm that we cause ourselves and society through, through our use of alcohol. Just, can Question. I just, just before Sorry, we go yeah. to it, really Sorry. briefly, yeah. Nick's been maligning our, our pain colleagues, and I feel I should defend them um, in that there are pain clinics um, who spend a lot of their effort trying to wean people off opioids because they know that if you're on opiates for chronic pain, it's quite different for acute pain. If you have your appendix out or if you have cancer pain, you need opiates for pain. But if you're on them for chronic pain, you get neuroadaptation, your receptors change, and you actually can feel pain more if you're on opiates chronically. So there's pain clinics uh, who spend a lot of effort and time working with their patients to explain this to them and, and bring down their dose of opiates. So, you know, there's good and bad mechanics, there's good and bad pain doctors, but I certainly agree with Nick, the commercial determinants of health, having industry pushing the painkillers and people looking for the perfect life where you never had any discomfort. And I'm afraid, you know, a bit of back pain is, I'm afraid, part of um, being an over 40 adult. Like as much as the pain doctors, you know. In psychiatry, we do the same thing with our benzodiazepines, you know. Um, so. This is what I mean by we are, we, we are a very medicated society in Australia. We do like our pills. Question. Hello. Yeah. Um, my question is uh, to all three of you. Nick, you've already, I think, made your views plain on that. But I'd like to know where you sit, all of you, on the nature-nurture uh, axis here. Is genetics involved to any degree at all? And if so, to what extent? Simplistically, is there an addictive gene? Genetics of... Uh, addiction. Addiction. Of addiction, of addiction yeah. generally. Okay. Can, can I start on that? Because sure. I, I know a little bit of the genetics of alcohol. Um, in our, there is no one addictive gene and there is no one addictive personality. That's a myth. However, um, as I said earlier, genetics is a complex mix of genes and environment. For alcohol, there's been quite sophisticated twin studies done where they compare the similarities and differences of identical twins compared to twins who may be the same age, but they're non-identical twins. Um, twins who are the same age who are non-identical twins. And they found that the drinking pattern of identical twins is far more similar. So for alcohol, through com complex statistics and careful methods, they've worked out that probably half of your drinking pattern is genetically determined. But there is no one gene and it doesn't, and there are multiple genes and what, they, um, what those genes determine are things like how your dopamine receptors are wired, your degree of thrill-seeking, but also for alcohol, your degree of sensitivity to alcohol. So you, you meet young ones and sometimes older ones who are very proud that they can you know, drink a case of beer and not feel intoxicated. Well, in fact, if you feel alcohol less when you first start drinking, you're more likely to get dependent on it, possibly because you're not getting that feedback mm. that you've had too much. Yeah, so we know less about the other drugs, but I think alcohol is probably a useful model to start with. I'll jump in very quickly and just talk about the nurture side uh, for technology. Uh, I totally agree with Kate. There, there is no evidence so far in any kind of technology gene <laughs> being addicted to uh, games or smartphones or so on. But the nurture side, we've found quite strong correlations. So if you are a certain age, if you are a certain gender, and if you're in a certain culture or geographical area, then there is a strong chance that certain parts of the internet will be attractive. Uh, we've seen in a lot of Asian culture that gaming is very, very strongly uh, attracting boys over girls. 
that we see that the boys are gaming more, that they're not just gaming, they want to learn about gaming, they read the blogs, they involve themselves in esports, which is a growing area in industry. Uh, we've seen that there's a correlation between their amount of schoolwork that they're doing, which is a very high level compared to some other countries, and that their escape time therefore goes online because they don't do as much outdoor stuff. I'm not labelling any one country, I'm just saying this is the, the broad spectrum of nurturing that culture. In Australia, when we look at nurture and technology, social media seems to be highly correlated to adolescent problems to a degree, but it's also something that if you took it away would cause adolescent problems. So we're seeing societal issues and technology and gender issues and technology and gender issues and technology. Yeah. And with any question, is that nature and nurture, I think... Everyone knows it's both. Yeah. And just on, sort of, really yeah. quickly, if you look at what works to prevent drug problems, because I think that's useful on the nurture side, there's been some very nice work done in Iceland. Um, I think it's Harvey Milkman is the man, and they found that getting people connected, getting young people connected and valued and loved and giving them good constructive things to do and lots of interest and activities was showing um, reductions in substance use. Yeah, here, here, question. Um, yeah, I have a question uh, to Kate, and thanks for just touched on that uh, connection. Um, I think that's uh, every, you know, the antidote of every addiction or, uh, is connection, the best antidote. Um, I'm just wondering um, that um, specifically uh, about alcohol abuse or alcoholism, um, why is it still so stigmatized here, whereas in, in America when... Alcoholics Anonymous started, it's, it's an, almost a non-issue and people are proudly saying, I'm going to an AA meeting. And uh, what do you all in medical field think about the 12-step programs? Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I have nearly 14 years sobriety. And um, I, I just absolutely adore my life today. Right. Whereas, but Kate was mentioning that um, I'm thinking back on my drinking story, and it's really true that um, uh, my early teenagehood, when I started drinking, I, um, uh, I could drink guys under the table, <laughs> and I was very proud of it. I didn't realize it's never a good sign. <laughs> 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 and as naturally, as fast forward years, it, it's changed and caught up with me, and um, I, I didn't end up in rehabs or anything. I actually realized that it's you know, not constructive in my you know, family life and all that, and uh, I seek help. But um, why is it still so um, mm, not really endorsed, not really mentioned by on the medical field? And uh, even rehabs, some rehabs, uh, yes, they endorse the 12-step program, but some just don't even want to mention it. Maybe, I don't know what reason, maybe money, maybe, I don't so know. Maybe, so maybe if I can, you could... Yeah, thank you, thank and, you. and congratulations. Thank That's a, a great achievement, I think. When you work in the field, you know how, how challenging it can be and how much work and determination oh, it takes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think two things to say. One is the stigma of alcohol dependence. I, I totally agree. It's a really big issue... And um, I think we've got a long way to go. I think it's, it's getting better. And I think if anyone, have, if you've followed on the web, um, Dry July, no, not Dry, uh, sorry, Hello Sunday Morning was what I was thinking about. I mean, Dry July and all those sober October, I think have got people thinking about how normalised alcohol has become in our daily life. Um, but I, and Hello Sunday Morning is people celebrating how much better life is if they've had a bit of an issue with alcohol and got it under control. And I, I think it's, it's so terrific seeing people celebrating how good life is afterwards. 
rather than concentrating on how, to, you know, necessarily on how bad it was before. Uh, in terms of the stigma issue with medical students, we're very proud at this university, some round about the late 90s, we introduced um, a program whereby every single student has to meet patients with alcohol or drug problems and it has to be signed off. They have to take a history, which means getting to know the person. And when we started this, um, as I say, around late 90s, early 2000s, one of the common comments we got from students about, you know, our heroin-using <laughs> patients or our severely alcohol-dependent patients is, they're ordinary people. They're normal. Yeah. And, and they were surprised. They, they were ordinary. They could engage with them. They could like them. And it's, I've, I've seen a huge difference at this hospital and this, at this university. Um, when I was a young doctor, people were, were tending to read House of God and, you know, talking about people coming in and, uh, was it PFOs, you know, but they you know, pissed and fell over. And, you know, it was all very... And, you know, Gomez, get out of my emergency room. But it's now I get young doctors ringing me up and say, you know, Dr. Conagrave, um, I've got this patient that's come in. You know, they've been drinking the last three months, but before that they got six months clean and they're really keen to try again. And I think I'd really like to give them another chance. And I've seen a big shift but it's patchy. I don't think every university yet has it, and I know there's some hospitals around this country that won't admit someone in alcohol withdrawal because um, I've heard it from colleagues who are distressed by this. So I think we do have a long way to go. Um, Look, the connectedness question, I think, is a really good, good um, question because, again, it just really highlights the co just how complex this is as an area. So for some people, their substance use is a way of connecting with the world. For other people, the substance use isolates them from the world. So I remember the very first patient I ever had, I'll never forget this patient, because he really just highlighted just what an idiot I was. There I am, sort of my first patient, I'm kind of thinking, so, why did you start using drugs? I'm thinking, that's going to be a decent enough question for your first patient ever. Um, and he just looked at me like I was the, the biggest idiot ever. He's kind of like, mm. <laughs> Every single person I know uses drugs. What are you talking about? Like, you know, like, where, where'd you get your book learning from? Um, so, again, was that recognition? Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. Every single person is, you know, you know I thought he was exaggerating. We went through it. No, it's pretty much right, actually. Every person he knew was using drugs. So asking that person, why'd you start using drugs, is kind of like, so why'd you start, I don't know, brushing your teeth in the morning? It, it was kind of... So for that person, their substance use was connecting them to their world. And yet for other people, I assume the same thing is happening with the internet, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. For some Absolutely. people, they get online and this is their engagement with the world. For other people, you know, they isolate. There, there are people who have belonged to chat groups since the early 90s that say, that's my people, that's my connection. And often their only connection. Sometimes. And, and in our field, if someone stops drinking, um, or if they stop using heroin, a big challenge is what fills their social role. They can no longer see those Absolutely. friends with being, without being triggered to use or to drink. And I think... Uh, oh, exactly the same. Yeah. If you, if you, in the cases that I've seen as a child psychologist of a parent bringing a child in saying they're addicted to this game, and I'll say, well, let's, let's break it down. What are they really addicted to? The game or the social aspects, the competition, the media of it, uh, the fact that it's part of their, their school group? And that's where a lot of it starts, at school. And then if they can't talk about the game with their friends, 
they lose their face-to-face -face friends as much as Remember when it was about a year ago when, you know, there, was this, there were people just wandering around the streets doing Oh, yeah, Pokemon Go. Yeah. Everyone's addicted to it. Exactly. Uh, you don't see anyone doing that no, no more. No, no, no. So exactly. that's a good example of the marketing. and, and Absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. We have a question over here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Lena. Um, uh, my question is about the use of electronics and the video games and... Um, in the young generation. Um, so one of the biggest concerns the parents have uh, these days is how, how much time the kids spend on, um, on the electronics and how antisocial they're becoming. Uh, yeah. So their social is different, they just through yeah. the electronics. And, uh, so I'm just wondering if there have been any research and based on those, um, have there been any um, successful method on how to deal with it and how to replace this reward system and yeah. Um, uh, your questions are, are actually probably the, the two... Uh, I said the most common question I get asked to this day is, is the internet addictive. The, the next two questions are actually how much time should they spend and how do we stop it if we had to stop it or need to stop it. So I, I, there is research done on both. But I'm, I'm going to give you something uh, a little alarming first, not to alarm you, but just to tell you what the government did. The government recommends through a number of websites, ACMA being one of them, the Australian Communications Media Authority, that two hours of screen time is enough for any person. I would challenge anyone in this room to say that they've done two hours only today of screen time on their phones, their computers, and everything else. So if we're applying that to children, we've got to ask ourselves, two hours of what? Does that include TVs? Does it include looking at these monitors up here? All of these are screens. So we have to look responsibly at are we doing productive versus leisure versus time wasting and so on and that sort of thing. Uh, yes, there's studies, just to, to finish that question on screen time, uh, yes, there's studies that show that too much screen time will interfere with sleep patterns and we've got very good evidence on that now and it's therefore recommended and rightly so to not use backlit screens an hour to two hours before bed. In the second part of the question of, you know, can we intervene with getting them to stop? Yes, you can, and there's one methodology that's been used with gaming that's worked with younger children. And I would actually say this is the group that you, you would have a bit more of a chance of adapting their use than someone who's 17, has been gaming for five years and trying what I'm about to mention. And that is actually becoming a participant. And it sounds funny, but most parents would tell their child, come on, put that down, switch it off, go to bed, eat dinner, talk to somebody. But what they're also not doing when they're giving that instruction is understanding what that child was doing at that time. When we actually say to a child, stop playing with your football and come inside, we have an understanding of why the football is engaging. And you might say, you've got five more minutes to do this, or I'll come out and kick the ball with you for five more minutes, or something like that, and they break away from it. But if you ask a child to put down a game that they're engaged in, and you don't know what the game is, what their challenges are, what will happen if they switch off the game at that very moment in time, then essentially they're going to get angry and frustrated. But if you actually say, oh, look, I know you're playing Call of Duty and you're at level 14. You need to finish this now. Save the button. I know you can save it. Come back and you can log in for this. You know, you've now got the language. You've got the understanding. You've got the understanding of the game's rules. And the child more or less kind of goes, you're working within a framework that I could possibly work within. Now, I'm not saying that's ideal. I'm really not. I'm just saying that some studies have shown that a parent understanding what functions the child is using is a better way to communicate how to disengage than just saying, switch the damn thing off. Or in a lot of previous studies, saying, I'll ban it. 
what we've actually seen is people then going, well, I'll just find another way to get to my tech use, whether it be school, mobile phone, and so on. I know it's a long-winded answer I've just given you, but yes, there are some studies on this. To get to the real nub of what I think you're asking, of is there a way to intervene, the best way is demonstration. Most kids are modeling of a lot of what we do, and the number one thing they see us all the time is on our phones. So that's the other thing. We've got to look at the modality that they're using, the function that they're using, when they're using it, and the social skills that they are either losing or gaining because of it. So really, when we frame the question again, <laughs> I'd have to talk to you after this and say, specifically, what is going on? <laughs> and then we can work it out. So, and are you saying that, that just, just say no doesn't work? No. Because that that's formed the basis of Australian <laughs> drug policy for the last 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <I'm not>. <laughs> <laughs> question up the back. Thank you. Um, I'm the mother of teenage boys. <clears throat> well done. <laughs> uh, I'm going to let them breathe. Um, I came along here tonight really worried about the screen time, phones, laptops, Nintendos, Xbox, PS, they've, all, they've got the lot. And I'm having a lot of trouble trying to mm, limit their screen time Sometimes they'll get real potty mouth at me and, <laughs> and sit up all night and I'll go in at 4am, the light's still on, they're still doing something. Um, it's not just the amount of screen time. I mean, they do other things as well, like documentaries. They used to go out and play, but they don't leave the house now, which really worries me because they're using all this language like, you know, F you and mother effing and... and I mean, we've all heard that before, but it seems to be the vernacular of teenagers these days, and I'm really finding it a little tough. Mm -hmm. And um, their personalities are changing. Their brain's not the same as it used to be. They're still academically really well doing at school, but um, better than I'm doing now. But they're changing their behaviour, and it's really... My question, I guess, is should I be concerned about brain changes in adolescence? And if so, how do I really limit the games? Before Apart we go from there, what you just said. Before we go there, I just want to say in a lighthearted way, not to, to um, make lighthearted of your question, um, I'm really worried about the US president tweeting at 3 a.m. <laughs> I just want to know... I think we all are. Um, <laughs> if we can come to that as a serious question later. Sure. Um, yeah, but so screen, uh, screen can, I, can I ask the lady that was just speaking to put her hand up? Because I actually can't see with all these lights yeah, yeah. where the voice was coming from. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just hear the speakers and I'm thinking, wow, it's a godlike voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, uh, to first answer the, the, the issue, ooh, we're getting some feedback, to the issue on, on vernacular. Um, this is a common thing that we're, we're witnessing and to be honest, it's not uh, and I'm actually going to quote Professor Jared Goggins here, who's a media and communication specialist here at Sydney Uni. And some of his work has looked into how media is changing the way we interact with each other, not just the technology, but the way media is it's being fettered or not fettered, and how that's filtering into acceptable speech. So to answer that question is that I don't think that's necessarily them spending an addictive amount of time, but more a case of they're finding that that online world and their age group is accepting this language and they're not filtering it around other people. I'm afraid I don't have an answer for that. Oh, uh, yeah, um, look, I, I can't say I haven't seen that before, but I can't say I can tell you it's just internet exposure that's doing it. 
I think you might find that it's it's moving into a, a cultural and a gender and an age group, like I was talking before about the, the nurture side of things. As for the time of what they're doing online and they're getting aggressive with you, okay, so on that part there, can I ask a quick question of you? How long have they been doing this behaviour for? You said they were 17 now. No, one's 15 and one's 13. Right. Um, oh, sorry. They're both independent of each other, but they both spend far too long... Um, as do I on my phone, but uh, in terms of a young brain, I'm just concerned about what they're exposing themselves to, the violence, yep. the potty mouth, and then how they use it every day. Um, and I just, you know, I'm just trying to foster intelligent, um, young, capable uh, people. Of course, but of course. It's not working too well. Um, no. And I'm on opiates at the moment, and I'm in a wheelchair, so the three of us That's hard. are yeah. all sort of needing to make changes, but I just, it's really difficult because I don't want to say no, stop, don't mm. all the time, but I just, I'm not the leader anymore in the house and it's really scary to, to lose your kids and their personality changes and they don't go out and their friends drop off. So is the next step, you know, juvenile detention, drugs? <laughs> no, Help. no, I can't, well, you can never say no, but what I would say is unlikely. Um, what you are seeing is some normal adolescent development, and that is independent behaviour and, and acting out. On the other, other side of things, there's probably some modelling behaviour, and on another side of things, there's probably a case of that they've got their own external world that they're trying to engage with. And, and it's really a case now, and, and as we mentioned at the beginning of tonight, we, we unfortunately can't give therapy and diagnose and all of those sorts of things, but from what you're describing, it sounds environmental. And that's a, a conversation around how do we change our lives together, uh, if that's what you want to do. And to state your displeasure, your unhappiness and so on re requires, unfortunately, that moment where you get them all on the same page. And that probably won't be at four in the morning. It'll more likely be, hey, can we have breakfast together and discuss this? Um, Ultimately, what I could say is that, yes, there's some technology issues. Yes, there's uh, overexposure issues. But I think we're looking at probably adolescent development issues as well. And, and, and I mean, the, the internet now is the, the, the youth of today and the internet. Um, I, I, so this is the first generation that's really had social it media is. needs. This is the digital natives. Yeah. But if we go back, you know, pretty much since the, since the war, more or less, every new generation has had exposure to a new something mm. which the previous generation were, were, were convinced was going to result in the end of civilization as we knew it. <laughs> so I remember when television came. Remember? Mm. Oh, what's going to happen to those kids? And, and screen time was an issue then. Screen time was then. Um, alcohol, cannabis use, really that was until the 60s and 70s. Adolescents never used those drugs, or so rarely, and so there was this concern about what's going to happen to the next generation who are exposed to drinking alcohol and and, and smoking cannabis in their teenagers, and, and that's going to result in the end of civilization. So I think we're very good at identifying why the next generation is the end of civilization. Mm. Um, it may be, but it may not be, and I, and and I. Uh, we, I think we need to reserve judgment. If I can th add... That we are on the verge of the end of civilization, although Donald Trump does scare me. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Donald Trump. Um, if I can add something positive that, that you will probably see, and this has been a trend over the last 10 years, and it's been followed uh, quite actively by the tech companies, and that is Facebook. 
Okay, this is the, I'm specifically going to look at Facebook here. And that is that young people who get onto social media tend to get on around about, and this is a bit of a shocking statistic, about age nine. Now, that's many years before the tech company clauses say they should be on, and actually it's 13 that they say, but they also can't stop a nine-year-old signing up. Having said that, an interesting trend's happened since 2004, and that, that those people that signed up in 2004 for their Facebook accounts got to about age 22 and suddenly dropped off their Facebook use. We're seeing that as adolescence moves forward and technology use becomes very, very common, that they start changing to what is actually functional and supportive for their use rather than uh, a socially driven thing that's their peer group at school. And that's because as they move out to the workforce and other priorities take place, their priorities shift away from certain distractions and social media has been one of those that we've been tracking. That doesn't mean to say they won't ever use social media, but they start being very selective on how they use it, how often they use it, what they're using it for. Which is what we do with our drug use too. Yeah. I mean, we all do stupid things when we're teenagers. Yeah. And then, Jen, you reach this age where you start sort of, I'm not going to stay up you know, late drinking a slab mm -hmm. of beer every night. It doesn't do me any good. You mm -hmm. figure that out eventually. Yeah. yeah. Question over here. Yeah. Uh, hi there. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about uh, integrating families into treatment services. There's a lot of talk about social connection and how that's so important to... Um, uh, improve treatment outcomes and we're good at the biological and a little bit at the psychological therapies that we've talked about and I'm wondering how well are treatment services set up to include families or important social networks uh, with people and what could be done if there aren't as Can, good as they should Maybe I could start with that because I, I think you've, you've got a very good question. In general, very poorly. There are exceptions. Um, I, I do some work in the Aboriginal space and I think Aboriginal community is much more aware of how terribly important family is and there are some family rehabs. Um, I'm aware of more in the Aboriginal space than the non-Aboriginal space. Um, but I think sometimes our Western model where you take one person, you know, you work with them, motivate them to try and change their substance use, give them CBT, how to avoid the triggers, then you plomp them back into the circle of all the people around them who still use, it, it's clearly a bit crazy. Uh, so I think we've got a long way to go. Did you want to say Yeah, I agree. If we, if we were honest and we were doing our own, you know, self-audit of how we're going, I think we'd all would fail ourselves. Um, I don't think we're, we've... But it's also an incredibly complicated area, and issues such as stigma are huge. You know, um, it, if you look at what's happened in the mental health uh, treatment sector, mm -hmm. huge strides over the last 20 years, and a lot of that is a lot of you know head-on confrontation with this idea of you know the stigma of mental health. We aren't there in, in with uh, addictions and substance use in Australia. I don't think we, you know, as as the previous um, uh, commentator mm -hmm. mentioned. We haven't started to to address the stigma associated with uh, with addiction and substance use, a whole range of things. It's it's having a uh, a person with with drug problems in the family is one it's one of the most stressful things that can happen to a family, and, and yet within society we're not we're still not capable about of, of talking about these things. It's really it's it, it's uh, we've got a long way to go. It's interesting, we called tonight's forum, you know, addiction is it the new normal, and it was a slightly tongue-in-cheek provocative question, um, and from what I'm hearing from you, Nick, and others, is that uh, substance use, drug use, screen usage, application uses, email, SMS, all of these things 
um, are, are not uh, are common and problematic use is not uncommon. Mm. Yeah. It's quite interesting if you look at something like alcohol dependence, there's probably about one in 26 of Australians are dependent on alcohol. Um, but if you go around the world, it's a remarkably constant statistic. Somewhere around 3 to 5% of the population are dependent mm. on alcohol. Mm. With some exceptions, for example, Muslim-majority countries where there's less availability and where there's a strong social, social and religious stigma against drinking. Mm. So uh, I think it speaks to the fact that addiction, whilst it mightn't, you know, I don't know that 5% counts as normal, but addiction is very much a part of life across the world and across history. And if you think about you know, the broader numbers of people in a society who experience problems related to their substance use, that's much higher than the 5%. I mean, then we're sort of talking about one in six, probably, close to that 15% of, of uh, adults in Australia you know, will, will experience harms related to their use of alcohol or other drugs. Um, hi, I'm Jacinta. I'm a clinical nurse specialist in critical care. Um, I was wondering what your perspectives, what was more of a threat um, to both individuals and as a society collectively, um, whether it's an open and honest uh, harm minimisation, uh, deregulation of drugs and open use of alcohol, or uh, continue the war on drugs and if you think the way that the uh, government policy is going, whether that is a successful um, policy and will work. I think I should answer, because if Nick starts, we'll have trouble stopping him, because uh, I know his <laughs> views on this. Uh, I think there's global recognition that the war on drugs has not been a success, and the, the WHO, United Nations, is moving uh, to a more rational policy on drugs. The, um, and I know we don't want to go too far that because we could spend the whole night on it, but mm. the whole, uh, as Nick has said, when you look at the burden of harms, there's far more harms from, say, alcohol than cannabis, um, but one's, you know, the, the legal status doesn't match the harms. Um, and there's a lot of interest in places like Portugal that have decriminalised um, substance use and it looks very promising results. But, yeah. I would say the question is not really about is it A or B. Mm -hmm. um, I thought the third option was going to be whether Donald Trump is the greatest risk to, to, to society, but it wasn't. Um, it's not really about A or B. I think the question of, you know, is, is it a case that we want an unregulated kind of world? Um, because that's not what we have for any drug. Or do we want a highly regulated world? And even there, it's confusing, you know. So on the one hand, we can say opioids are highly regulated and, you know, illegal. But on the other hand, we're shipping them out by the kilogram, um, you know, th through, through doctors. So rather than thinking about, you know, is it you know, prohibition or not, I think a better question is what kind of regulations and what regulatory framework should we have in place that reduce harms in the society? So alcohol, yes, it's legal, but we've got so many regulations around alcohol, you know, according to who you can sell it to, where you can sell it, when you can sell it, so there's a regulatory world around alcohol, a regulatory world around tobacco, there's a regulatory world around methamphetamines, and a regulatory world around dexamphetamines. You know, so all drugs are regulated. The questions we have to ask ourselves, what's the right mix? Have we got the settings right? Um, and, and as Kate says, we, we probably don't, but a polarised perspective of we're either going to become, you know, we're either for, you know, free drugs for everyone. It's kind of, well, we never have been. 
And that's probably, I don't think anyone would think that's a good idea either. It's a case of, can we tweak the way we do things better? Absolutely. So it's, is, you know, do we want an incrementalist approach or are we going to expect a revolution, you know, and I don't think we're going to get the latter in an Australian political landscape. Speaking of that, just to note, I mean, Sydney has experienced, so we've had lockout laws in place now for some parts of the city for the last year or year and a no, half. No, three, three years. By the former four, Premier. Yeah. Highly controversial, of course, there are vested interests. It's about minimising harm. And as I understand, we've seen a 30% reduction in alcohol-related violence since the lockout laws. And yet, of course, there has been, they've been controversial. There's some suggestion they should be wound back. So change is difficult, is it not? Yes, and I, th I think in any other field of health, if you had a 30% reduction of, of a major adverse outcome, you'd be celebrating, But it, so it's odd that it's being wound back. Um, but, you know, it, they are difficult decisions, and I have sympathy for our politicians, but I think it's to their credit that they did make a move on it, because the, even in the gains that has been had over those years, the number that have avoided, um, they, they showed the reduction in in admissions to intensive care with severe facial injuries in St Vincent's mm. was very significant. So even in those years we've had it, mm. uh, a lot of people's faces have been saved, let alone the distress and suffering. Yeah, interesting question, Julian, off the bat. Hello. I just wanted to hear your thoughts quickly on people who are very high-functioning and have addictions and how they get there, perhaps, or how they get out of there, or do they always fail in the end? Um, well, I think Winston Churchill, I think, was one example, wasn't he, by all accounts? I haven't read his, his biography, but I understand he had a good-going alcohol dependence and used to drink in the morning. Um, I, don't know, I don't know his history well enough. So certainly people can um, hide alcohol dependence or keep functioning despite... Um, alcohol dependence, usually once it gets more severe, it starts to show up. And certainly in the hospitals, we see an awful lot of cognitive impairment, people who, who are a bit knocked off because of their drinking and often starting from, you know, age of 40 or so. Um, so I think, you know, as, as one young Irish friend said to me, you know, they have the shine taken off them. Um, yeah, so, you know, people who drink six or more drinks a day, if you do cognitive testing, you generally will see some level of impairment. But some people are extremely high-functioning and they've got a bit of spare capacity and it takes a while to show up. Um, opiate dependence, on the other hand, if you've got someone who's opiate dependent, as long as they can get a regular, pure supply, they can function really, I think, completely normally. Um, so again, you know, um, sometimes the things that are demonised uh, are not not quite as as evil as others. So the, the, it varies from drug to drug. I, I forget the rock star. It was probably Keith Richards. That's, that's, you know, <laughs> basically, you know, I used to have a drug problem, then I became wealthy. Mm. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> no drug problem anymore. I could get as much drugs as I want. So look, there's a lot of um, yeah. There's there's clearly a whole bunch of people that that would meet diagnostic criteria, um, yet they continue to function um, and. Uh, the more resources you have, the wealthier, the more, you know, it's much easier to reconnect back into society if daddy's going to give you a job. 
compared, you know, because daddy can give you a job versus, you know, you're going to be at the bottom of an unemployment line and, and the fact that you've done prison terms means no one's going to employ you. So the harms that, that, that you know, two people using the same amount of drugs, the same genetic profiles, let's call them, you know, genetic siblings, uh, if one is in a, you know, in an environment which is well supported and has a whole range of supports compared to someone who doesn't, they're going to end up at very different journeys and diff very different profiles. Just to be clear, Kate, when you take a history from someone about their alcohol use, are there diagnostic cr criteria? How do you come to a conclusion that someone does or does not have yeah, alcohol dependence issues? Yeah, and as Nick and Andrew have alluded to, there is a continuum from someone who doesn't use to occasional use to regular use to risky use but no harms yet to harmful use and the term dependence, I still find a practical use for it. Um, there's, there's two diagnostic sets. The psychiatrists have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM that Nick referred to. Um, General Health, the World Health Organization has the International Classification of Diseases, mm. the ICD-10. I still find a lot of value in the ICD-10, which it, it defines when you're dependent. The key elements um, in, in the new, newest revision, they're going up to the 11th revision, which shows how complex it is to pin it all down, but they define probably three main areas. One is that strong inner drive to use. So when people start drinking or using a drug, they often use because it fulfills a need, it relieves stress, or because they enjoy it, or it feels good, or it's an experiment. But once they get hooked, they're typically using because they have to. Uh, they've got a strong need to use, and when they don't, if they, uh, for a lot of people, not all, they get very marked withdrawals and they feel very uncomfortable or actually physical sick, physically sick. In the case of alcohol, they can get a dangerous or even life-threatening withdrawal sometimes. So, um, so the strong inner desire to use, and it goes along with the the alcohol, the drug starts to become more important than the other things around them in their life, more important than eating a healthy diet, more important than spending time with their family, uh, more important than turning up to their job. And it's not a conscious decision, it's just, this is just an overpowering drive. Um, it often goes along with tolerance, so that they need more to get the same effect. Often, but not always, they get withdrawals when they stop. Um, they continue using despite harm. What I've obviously forgotten one. That's of counting tolerance. Did you say tolerance? Sorry? <laughs> anyway, th those are the main. Those are the main concepts. Um, so yeah, there are criteria. Why do I find it useful? I think it's useful from a clinical sense. You have to work out: Are you going to try and support a person to? to cut down or do you think it's going to be really really difficult for them to cut down and stopping is going to be the only option and the higher they score on dependence or if they meet those criteria for dependence most people find they can't cut down and that stopping is the only realistic option um, sad as that is for them because this has formed an important part mm -hmm. of their life but maybe Andrew can do you want to comment do those criteria work in internet addiction uh, well look when, when we look at internet addiction which was just to go back over the week in the DSM-5, which is the latest diagnostic manual we, we follow, uh, it, it gives mention, uh, not a diagnostic criteria, that there can be dependence on internet content. So we, we have got some scales out there that are being validated now to show that there are levels of uh, obsessional behaviour to pathological internet use. Uh, and, and the same thing that Kate was describing, where we actually see them give up parts of their lives, you know, that they don't want to go to work, or they would rather spend time socialising online than face-to-face -face and things like that. 
Having said that, on a diagnostic level, more often than not, we're looking for comorbidity. We're looking at what is it they are trying to cope with. Uh, not necessarily hide, but cope with. The, when I did my PhD in the field in the very early 2000s, I had studied very briefly at New York University where they were looking into the fact that social phobia was something that people were seeking help for online, but not in the clinical sense, in the sense of another way to gain social contact and to control that social contact and to really basically flourish with what they wanted without feeling as though they were being uh, judged or persecuted or and having the ability to switch the computer off when they wanted to. And we now have seen that as a criteria. We've actually seen the way people can actually live online and feel that they are getting the same needs of social recognition and affirmation they would face to face. But we want to move them offline uh, to, to, to show that they can still have that and just push them a little bit further. The ability to do that, moving from alcohol dependence to not having the internet at all, we've not been able to succeed. And, and it's because it's, it's, it's part of their work life as well, it's a part of their, their social life. So we're now looking at integrating that sort of behaviour. We have a question up the back and we're a few minutes from finishing. So. Okay. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask about the use of um, opioid receptor inhibitors like naltrexone to treat alcohol abuse. Um, I know they're prescribed in Australia on the uh, basis that you would take them daily. So I guess one question is, wouldn't that reduce people's pleasure in everything? And the second one, I've read that there's another way people might use them where they would just take them when they felt that they were going to drink, um, something that I've heard called the Sinclair method. And I wondered if you had opinions on, on those things. Can I maybe start and then hand to Nick? Um, theoretically, you would think something that blocks the opiate receptor would stop your enjoyment in the rest of life. But I believe there's very little evidence that that's the case, and people have looked for evidence of it. I, I had a patient who was on naltrexone. I have multiple patients who are on naltrexone for alcohol dependence. But one of them describes that he used to drink 20 drinks a day, and now when he's on naltrexone, he gets to three, and he says, why am I bothering? And it, so it works beautifully for him. In He's not been able to stop, but he's been able to limit it at a much safer level. He became worried was it interfering with his ability to, you know, enjoy all other aspects of life. Um, and he tried going off it, and he found it was no different. He, so he tested it with himself on a one-on-one -on -one experiment. I know one-on-one's not much, but he tried on it and off it, and he couldn't tell any difference at all. And I suppose the other thing to say is when you're alcohol-dependent, uh, you tend to get depressed mood and anxiety, and it significantly interferes with your quality of life. Um, what was the other... Uh, whether or not it's something like a nalmorphine or the occasional the target, sort of the, the idea that I'll only use the, 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 the medicine, say, at risk time. So, you know, I know Friday night I go drinking with the boys. I really don't want to go drinking with the boys on a Friday night, so I'll drop some of these pills, you know, Friday morning. Um, great theory. Uh, unfortunately, the evidence really didn't support it. Um, you know, the, the, the data in trials isn't that convincing. So there was an attempt to, to license a medicine here in Australia under those conditions, but I think it got knocked back because the data, they just didn't convince. And, and I'm not sure why it doesn't, because in theory it does make sense, so I'll, I'll have to go away and read but up on it. One of my very first patients on naltrexone, um, she, was, uh, um, she was actually going, using it for opioids and going through, she's done really well, she's gone through a detox, was on naltrexone, was going really well, and it's one of those, you know, it's about in two months 
you know, hadn't used any heroin, taking her medicine all the time. You know, she was leaving the concert, and it was one of those, oh, one, one, one other thing, Doc, and they're always, the, they're always the killer questions, those one other thing, Docs. Um, she said, look, I'm just a bit concerned. I've lost my sex drive. Um, you should explain how she was in a, um, in a relationship with another woman. Um, you know, she's lost her sex drive since um, starting the medicine, you know, and she was just a bit worried that not only did the naltrexone um, stop her from using heroin, but maybe it made her straight. Um, <laughs> it had Don't iron, tell Donald ironed out all the, you know, all the naughty behaviour or something, and I had to reassure her, no, no, don't worry. That's pretty common when people stop using um, heroin, so she was relieved. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> uh, if you've enjoyed tonight, uh, you might also be interested in our next Sydney Ideas Health Forum, which is on Health Hacks. That will be on September. The date is to be fixed yet. Um, how to keep your mind and body sharp, since um, hacking our way to better health was also mentioned tonight. Um, if you'd like to receive information about these and other upcoming Sydney Ideas events, please visit the Sydney Ideas homepage uh, that is coming up on your screen. Um, I want to, before we just finally wrap, um, thank our panellists. Um, if you put your hands together for our expert panel. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.